Is art the same thing as prayer? What does it mean to be mystical? Is it possible to have immense doubt and still be a person of faith? Quote unquote. Is getting on your knees the only way to talk to God? And who and what are God even? These are profoundly human questions. They ask not just about our spirituality, but about how we live our lives every single day. Or at least I've asked these questions for most of my life. My name's Brandy, and I'm your host. Welcome to This Plus That, a show about connecting the seemingly unconnectable and why it matters. In this conversation, I talk with Emily McElroy about the intersections of painting plus prayer. Because as you will hear us discuss, prayer can simply mean a posture or a way of being, or maybe even a way of living inside of a question, one that doesn't have any resolution, something that just is, but that we are in active dialogue with in our work and our relationships and everything else. Emily McElroy was born and raised in Norman, Oklahoma with her twin brother, Ross. She received her BA in studio art from the University of Arizona in 2005 and her MFA in drawing and painting from the University of Hawaii at Manoa in 2011. She served many years as an instructor and an art educator for the Honolulu Museum of Art School and the Hawaii State Art Museum and currently teaches in the drawing and painting program at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. When she's not teaching or in her studio, Emily enjoys reading, writing, and walking and swimming her way through various terrestrial and aquatic wildernesses. She lives and works in Honolulu's Palolo Valley with her very vocal Siamese cat, who definitely makes an appearance multiple times throughout our conversation, along with a local rooster. <laughs> and we start the interview by talking about how we came to meet. A pretty wild experience where a friend of mine asked me to write a piece in response to an exhibit of some of Emily's paintings which are a series called The Lilies, How They Grow. And I'd never before met Emily or seen her work, and what came rushing out of me into words when I saw it was something I couldn't really explain, and which turned into a full four hours of a podcast interview when we finally got to talk. I've cut it down significantly, of course, and if you're on my email list, I will alert you when I drop some bonus content I hope to share from the extended portion of this interview. But since we start off with that story, I wanted to do something I never do and quote myself to start the episode, by which I just mean I'd like to read you what I wrote so that you have context going into this conversation in terms of what we're talking about, not only being able to go see Emily's work, which we will link to in the show notes of this episode, but also to read or hear what I wrote in response upon seeing it for the first time. So here it is. It's called A Bright White Light. Can funerals be held for the living? I am neither dead nor alive, both dead and alive. Buried deep in muddy soil, the first pulse of a heart in utero. Starved like a wolf before dinner. So full I want to vomit. I am surrounded by bright light. Not clouds, really. Not a soft thing. Something more piercing. A light that holds me, but also cuts through my awareness so fiercely that I haven't yet sorted where I am. If heaven is meant to be saccharine, this is not that. If hell is endless terror, then it is not that either. I sense a violence may have taken me here, but something beautiful, too. I can't, don't, feel my body. Still, I appear to be tumbling. 
As I turn over and over through space, images peek through here and then again a bit later. In each flash, I feel a deep comfort, then tragedy, then peace. Even without my body, everything is visceral, grotesque, a carnival of oddities, a beak on shivering muscle, a river in the belly of a beast, jewels sewn into the skin and feather of a swan. <sighs> I taste iron. I scream in ecstasy. At once, everything is both gorgeous and horrific. Meat slaughtered, laughter loud. I push my awareness outward, and as though cupping my hand, I scrape up the ethereal. Dark oil oozes out of it until it can't be held any longer, and then a release, an opening, a way through. All of this magnificence tempts. I want to stay here, where all is known and full and extreme. But then, a whisper. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. In an instant, I fall through the gate, flicker open my damp eyes, arms spread wide, prostrate in the grass, and breathe droplets heavily into the air until I am one again with my own flesh until I forgive myself for still being here. This is a second part that's more of an essay, so I break into a new part of the writing, which begins with a question. Is death simply an encounter with life at full volume? Being human means only being able to experience reality in four dimensions. At our disposal on any given day, we have height, width, length, and time. Time, though, even still lies a bit beyond our grasp. Limited as we are, we consume our existence in manageable chunks. We swallow each day in metered doses, only sometimes allowing ourselves the full breadth of our senses. Some joy here, a small annoyance there. Too much of either and the bounds of sanity get a bit murky. Our bodies, fed too much pleasure or pain, tend to melt into nothingness. Maybe this is why the French call orgasm la petite more. But if you've experienced loss, you know what it is to have all of your boundaries obliterated, to be catapulted into reality and in full detail, every dimension all at once, here but not, rage and love mashed together. Life turned up to full resolution, though, can be too much. Trauma, after all, is when your body can't handle the amount of information it must process like a river trying to make its way through the head of a needle. As such, the experience of grief is often described in fits of depression and apathy. We turn ourselves off in order to survive the deluge of feeling. Every once in a while, though, when we allow ourselves to peek beyond the veil, to really look at death, what we often see is so much aliveness, it's blinding, painful. Maybe this is why people with near-death experiences always recall a bright white light, the combination of all colors on the spectrum. Beauty, love, loss, terror, confusion, absurdity, all vibrating through you at once. It's not surprising to me, then, that Emily's The Lilies How They Grow started in part with an escape into the piercingly white light of Alaska, a refusal to remain cut off, turned down, tuned out. Wilderness isn't where you go when you're interested in taking it easy. It's where you go when you need to find something else that pulses at the same cadence as your soul. Wild, dangerous, 
breathtaking. Back on Earth, it's easier to be gray than every color at once. But in prayer, in heaven and hell, we are allowed overwhelming abundance to be everything and nothing without hesitation. The problem is, once you really know love and grief, regular life becomes intolerable. After all that light, everything else, the morning traffic, your boring office chair, waiting on hold for your cable company, seems too damn trivial. It becomes too difficult when the real world asks you to shut off your newly widened senses each day because you know anything less than heaven is a half-life at best. As Audre Lorde once wrote, the erotic is a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. It is an internal sense of satisfaction to which, once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire. For having experienced the fullness of this depth of feeling and recognizing its power, in honor and self-respect, we can require no less of ourselves. It's not that loss feels good when you're in it. Quite the opposite, really. But you are ruined for the mundane once you know it. Perhaps this is why artists are our best shamans. Without much effort, for anyone too scared to live forever in the wilderness, they're able to shuttle us back and forth between worlds, translating the ethereal we can't yet hold into material objects that say, ride on the back of a lion, drink honey, fling your spirit into good work, break levees down with your tears, jump off a cliff. The lilies will be here to catch you when you do. It's where we're all going eventually anyway. Whew. Okay. Thank you for bearing with that long introduction, but this was a bit, it was just an episode that required a little bit of it, right? So that should be all the context you need now. Enjoy this magical chat between Emily and I, our first time speaking to each other on the intersections of painting plus prayer. I kind of feel like it would be fun to, um, I think, maybe just give context for anyone who doesn't know the background of how we came to know that each other existed. And I think I'd love to hear just sort of the context of uh, your exhibit at the dairy. And, you know, then I can fill in sort of my story and how we collided. I suppose. Uh, so that's, I guess, a general question that's just like, um, what was the Lilies exhibit about? And um, mm -hmm. yeah, when did that happen? And sort of, you know, um, maybe just how it came to be at the dairy. Okay. Um, yeah, how the Lilies came to be is a huge, <laughs> is a huge question, yeah. yes. um, which I'm sure we'll, we'll maybe, get into more. Uh, we'll that. unpack yeah. a little bit more as we. Um, dive in here, but uh, the, the short answer would be it's a, it's a body of work um, that I began in the summer of 2015 um, when I first moved into the painting studio that I'm in currently. And this body of work was set out in my mind as prayer, as prayers. I was in a place where I felt was um, I didn't just feel it was dangerous. I was in 
my spirit was in trouble and I didn't know how uh, to find a way out. And so I decided I was going to um, set aside the next three to four years. I don't know why I, that number was in my head. I just had a sense that that's how long it's going to take me to move through this cycle or through this journey. And I'm just going to paint. I don't even know what the imagery is going to be or how this is how that may change or unfold, but I need to make these prayers. Um, and then, so I pretty much hunkered down from 2015 to the early 2019 to make this work. And maybe a year before I finished, I just started, you know, I have a couple of sites that I browse for uh, calls for artists and different art centers looking for proposals. And the dairy came up and I researched it and Boulder is a place that I've um, always been interested in. I actually applied to grad school at uh, University of Colorado and I, I didn't get in, but I, I took a trip there to visit uh, from Tucson where I was living at the time or Tempe, I guess it was by then. Um, and I just was like, I thought it would be a good fit. So I applied um, and I kind of got waitlisted for a while and then the pandemic happened. And then there was a lot of curatorial, I think, turnover and changes. And eventually someone reached out and um, said, we're shutting things down, but we're, we're postponing everything indefinitely, but we'd still like you to show here in the future. And then eventually Drew reached back out and we um, decided to show the work in uh, 20, yeah, what is it, 2022? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So here I am sort of, I've been living in Denver for 20 years and I'm going through this whole journey and I, uh, it took a handful of months for me to sort of, I had lived in this house for six years and, um, that I owned in Denver and was going through all these health things and decided that I, uh, for various reasons was going to move and, uh, decided to move to Boulder and, you know, that process was just really exhausting. <laughs> the decision, the packing, the finding a place to live, because housing here is really difficult in general, um, both Denver and Boulder, but Boulder especially. And, you know, making the move, I moved here and I moved into one place. And uh, speaking of sleep issues uh, that we were chatting with before sort of starting the recording, uh, I moved into a place that had a train that was running like right by my head every night and my sleep was just utterly destroyed. And on night two, I, like after night two, I went down to the office and was like, hey, this is actually catastrophic. Like I can't live here um, because I hadn't seen the actual unit I was moving into before moving. And so I had to pack everything up again because I'd unloaded my entire house and like unpacked into the new place and I had to pack everything up again. And then I had to find a new place to live, found a new place, thankfully, relatively quickly, and then had to move again, unpack everything and like settle here and where I'm living now. And it's around this time. Well, and also after that was done, of course, I also had to, now that I was fully out of my house in Denver, had to get it ready to sell. So there was all this like renovation stuff I was doing in my house and just getting it ready for market and then putting it on the market and then the stress of selling it and like all of these things. And so right around this time is when Drew, who's my friend and uh, just a love of mine in terms of like just our shared art passions uh, here in the area, who's now the visual curator at the dairy, 
reached out to me and was like, hey, we're starting this new uh, writing thing where we're going to ask writers to uh, write pieces that are sort of responses to the, uh, to the current exhibits going on here. And there's someone I think you like you should do it for. And I would really be honored if you were the first person to, you know, do our first writing response. And I like, I really resisted it for like pretty hard. I think probably more internally than I did externally with Drew, but I, so I find, I said yes, eventually. And then even I think in doing it, I, I waited longer than I should have, knowing that, you know, your exhibit was going to be down in early April. I, I mean, I didn't hear about it until relatively close to when the exhibit was going to close anyway. So I didn't have a ton of time, but I still resisted and just sort of hesitated as, as much as I could. Cause I had actually just told my, I have a newsletter that I write at frequently also. And after I moved, I had told my entire audience, like, I don't know how long I'm not going to write, but I'm not going to write for a while. Like, I need rest. Goodbye. Like, I'll come back when I feel like re-energized. And so I was really hesitant to say yes to Drew and, you know, did all that sort of hesitating before actually digging into what he had asked me to do. But so there's one night, like I think a Tuesday night or something, a couple weeks before I know your exhibition exhibition is going to close. And so I, I go to the dairy at like 5 p.m. and there's no one else Thankfully, this is like exactly how I like to experience art. <laughs> it's like there's no one else in the gallery when I walk in. And so I sit down on like the little black benches that they have in there and I'm just like experiencing it. And almost immediately was like, I don't know what's happening, but it feels mystical. And um, I guess the like sort of logistics of the timeline, I so I'm there at five o'clock. I spend some time in the gallery and then the next day. Um, or that night, I spend no extra time on it. Next morning, I wake up. I'm like reading some blogs that you've written on it, um, on the work, um, specifically the series of paintings. And then I start writing. And within three or four hours between waking up and finishing the piece, it's done. And it's pretty rare when that happens. Uh, I feel like most time as a writer, uh, you're good. I feel like... I mean, often it just requires a bit more pulling of teeth, you know, like there was definitely some pulling of teeth to get me to show up to like actually go in and start the pro like start doing the assignment. And assignment is a really terrible word for it. It's a, a gift to do, but um, it took me a second to finally sort of go see the the work. And yeah, it was like, um, I've been finding it a little hard to like even put words around because putting words around it feel, you know, when you put words on the mystical, it gets a little bit tricky. <laughs> um, but also I'm kind of a fan of the idea of resacralizing re matter and I feel like words are a kind of material like th that we work with or at least writers work with you know and so yeah I've been trying to like sort of put it in words but it, I don't know it just felt mystical Emily like it was like I showed up and the thing I texted so I sort of go through this experience of sitting in the gallery and I'm walking out of the exhibit of the dairy and I text Drew and it's just like a single sentence where I'm like, Drew, you could scoop the grief off of those paintings. <laughs> um, which I'm sure is like both um, nice to hear because that's what you experienced in making them, but also terrible because um, it's such a felt 
experience, you know, like I think I'm sure it's not fun to know that it's like so affecting of other people too, or at least it was of me, but I, I could feel grief. Um, and, but it was like the kind of grief, um, well, I guess there were a few things. I'm just going to like ramble at you. <laughs> like, um, I remember thinking this is a person who is deeply aware of like spaces between, um, like sort of worlds that exist between things. And, um, I think too, that, that you was the work... title of my thesis exhibition was between two waters. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I am 0% surprised. Um, and it felt visceral. Like it just felt like a somatic experience to be in the gallery with them. And I think also, yeah, the grief of it was like a, I don't know. It, it was like this person has touched a level of darkness that I think a lot of people are quite terrified of and not a lot of people actually allow themselves into. And I have been there and it feels profound to see it visualized is sort of how I would describe, like I can talk about it or I can write about it, but to see it visualized was just such uh, an insane, incredible experience. And yeah, so there's no other way to describe it other than sort of mystical and also just inspired. Like I, it was like writing it uh, came through me. It wasn't like something I wrote, you know, have you had that experience before? Yeah, that's what I felt about all, all the paintings also. Yeah. I just feel like I go to the studio and my first job is to just get myself out of the way. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that other things can um, yeah. move through. Um, yep. And and when I when I read that, I, my jaw just kind of dropped. I was um, on my way to class. I teach uh, part-time in the drawing and painting program at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Uh, and Drew had you know, sent me a text like, oh, I just sent you over uh, Brandy's response. You know, I'm so over the moon about it. And I hope you are too. And um, I was trying to read it while walking to class, you know, walking uh, through the neighborhoods and across campus. And all of a sudden I was just like, okay, I have to put this down and wait till I can sit down and <laughs> start. I'm getting tears in my eyes. Like, this yeah. is, um, how did this person go in and and scoop all that out of the the work like how did she how was she able to get that much especially because I knew that you had, had just visited the exhibition I think Drew uh -huh. had told me that you were just coming yeah. and then the piece came like 36 hours later or something yeah what yeah that's truly what how happened? it felt it was not I did not anticipate that I, I typically also take longer with pieces not just in writing them but like really sort of um yeah, working over drafts and editing and like really putting a lot into sort of refining things. And there was something about like, it wasn't that I didn't want to do that with this. It just felt like almost it came out and it was done. It was like, I, there's not a lot here that needs refinement. I just feel like it just sort of poured and now the glass is full and no one needs to do anything extra with it. Um, and again, that's like, that's not not anything more than just feeling like, yeah, like that experience of being an artist where you're like, I feel like sort of my job in the world is to 
be empty enough, like to be a vessel so that those, like you said, like the sort of messages or whatever can come through. And part of what made it feel really mystical, it was like, there was so much I saw in this work, in your work, that was stuff that felt like I had not only experienced, but um, been living inside of for the last, I'd probably say, especially five years um, of my life and five to eight, maybe. And it was like, yeah, someone had put my soul on paper and had somehow visited all these places that I'd been to before. And I just kept feeling like, you know, Drew also must have had some sort of like intuition about just being like, Brandy has to be the one to do this. Because I sort of left being like, I didn't, I like, I'm not sure that anyone else would have. Like, not that, like everyone, of course, and this is again, like, I'm not trying to like self-aggrandize. I just, um, I wasn't sure that anyone had studied or been at or lived inside of the things that you were working with in the way that I had. <laughs> like, I just, it was such a bizarre, like, it was like yourself on paper, but somehow someone else somehow translated it. Um, so. Right. And there's such, I think, um, relief in that experience, right? To have, yeah. like, when I read something that is what I've been trying to put into words and haven't been able to, and then someone does it for me. Right. Um, or, you know, like you're saying, maybe you see a piece of art that uh, imagines or pictorializes a space that um, you haven't seen out in the world, that there's this kind of enormous relief at like not being alone in that. Yeah, space. totally. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why, you know, that's why we artists, writers, you know, we, one reason to kind of driver behind making is this feeling of like, I think it's Merleau-Ponty. I have to look it up. There's someone who talks about creating from a place of like a lack, like there's a lack in the actual world of a thing that visualizes or um, kind of embodies an experience. So the artist has to create it to get this relief to actually see it um, mm -hmm. out there. So it's not just inside anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I love in the like artist talk that you did with Drew, that line where you say that art is the whetstone of consciousness. It's just like, like a wisdom, like a bolt of wisdom that was like, whoa, that's, I have to sit with that. Like, and it just like sort of keeps coming up in my life too. But like, you know, I played some of that uh, to my friend Lauren the other day, just to be like, you have to listen to this one portion where she talks about this. Um, but yeah, that's a, like a really beautiful way to put it. Like, a, and I think the end of what I wrote even like the part, you know, sort of like, um, like artists are sort of our people who are able to take the ethereal and make them material. Um, so yeah, I, I felt that, but it's, yeah, it's like digging something out of consciousness that you've been able to like reflect back that someone else has experienced also that like, yeah, makes us feel less alone for sure. Um, and for me as well, you know, as the artist to feel it, have you say, and come back with that, um, sharing that experience of um, being like, oh, I've inhabited this. This is my territory too. Um, yeah, I exist here too. I've, I know this place. I know these forces. I've seen these features. I, have, I know this flesh or these animals or this feeling. Um, that's such a gift to me. 
So thank you for that. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what I told Drew when I left or when I got done with the, the writing, I was like, um, this was a gift to me. Like, just let her know that, that that was the case. Like, I don't know what comes of this, but like that was it sort of also, I think, reignited something for me that was like tapping back into that place. That's sort of the like, um, I don't know, like in the world that like Esther Perel, you know, calls eroticism or, um, you know, Andreas Weber refers to as aliveness. You know, it was just a something that's a source that is like an endless place of creativity for me. Uh, and so it was like after all these months of being so exhausted and going through all these like logistical hurdles of moving and finding a new place and making these really big decisions and big risks in my life in terms of like, you know, selling my house to afford paying for some like health issues. Um, I was exhausted, you know, and so it was like really incredible to encounter that space because it was like all of a sudden I was like, oh, <laughs> like I yeah, this is it. Like, this is what I love. This is like the sort of whatever she has tapped into in like some sort of ethereal, mystical, whatever's behind the world sort of way is like what feeds me also. So yeah, it felt like a gift for sure. Um, where do you feel like now just sort of like stepping back from those pieces a little bit, like where do you feel like today that you're sort of straddling two worlds or holding paradox or complexity in your life? Um, yeah, that's such a beautiful question. And I was prepared for it because I've, I've heard I'm you doing ask the that. It's like my yeah. way of Christa. I know at you. it's like, the, what's your <laughs> spiritual background? I was like, Oh yeah, that one too. Um, and what, a, you know, what a beautiful question. And so I was actually thinking a lot as I, you know, this week about, okay, how am I going to respond to that? Because um, I feel like I almost have to reframe the question a little bit because my, my work is so much has been driven um, by the experience of trying to hold tensions yeah, um, and trying to find a way to release this tension for survival. The, atten the tension mm -hmm. was so extreme. It's like at a breaking point. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like kind of the, the nexus of my practice has about, been about navigating paradox in general. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are no, there are no contradictions in the universe. The contradictions exist in the mind and in language, which is a tool of mind. Um, so part of this body of work, I was, and even going back before this body of work, but uh, learning that if I'm um, perceiving a contradiction or experiencing an internal conflict, my mind is making an assumption about something. Um, and the, the method or the framework that I'm using to try and resolve this conflict is actually conceptually wrong. Mm. Um, so then the question becomes, what do I need to change about my approach? What do I need to change about how I'm trying to navigate these complexities or these tensions and what assumptions do I need to abandon um, to find the way through or the way out so I'm almost you know, I'm kind of like Vonnegut spoken on where I like to take the cosmic approach and <laughs> move out and take the cosmic approach whenever possible and it's like well now the paradox I'm in is how do I just get out of paradox entirely um, 
because I know that I'm creating it. I know that I'm the creator of this problem. So uh, again, how do I get around my own limitations? How do I get around mm-hmm. myself? Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I feel like the lilies was about making a home for, I mean, I think there's a, a couple of pieces here where the first piece, for, at least for me, um, because I've not, I've had a great deal of difficulty in my life accepting contradictions. You know, it's always the mm-hmm. child who's like, you know, wait, hold on a second. Um, let's pause. How can beauty and strength and grace exist alongside all of this violence and ugliness and profanity? Uh-huh. How can someone be both exceptionally brilliant and uh, unstoppably destructive? Mm. How can I love someone and hate someone at the same time? And you know, I, I'm someone who wants harmony. I want things to make sense. Um, <laughs> and that just hasn't been the, my experience in the world. And the more extreme things happen, the more I get tested. And I think the first piece was learning to um, just accept that paradox is a natural feature of the human experience of, mm-hmm. of my mind. That's like mm-hmm. one layer. As soon as I accept that contradictions can exist, I'm sorry, our rooster is decided to... <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> to go off right outside my door. Rooster's um, going to rooster. If I can at least expand that circumference enough to include everything and to give everything a home, that was kind of the lilies. How do I make a home for all of these things inside me that are battling? Yeah. And the battle was actually pictorialized in the piece I did right before the lilies, which I spent two years on, which wow. um, almost monogamously on this one seven by 13 foot piece called sky burial where these giant hummingbirds are kind of Mm -hmm. raging um in this abstracted space and you're not sure if they're um fighting each other or is it blood is it nectar are these beaks or are they weapons are they wings or are they you know, are they angels? Are they warriors? All of these different uh, things happening in this one uh, painting. And the lilies is almost like trying to pull apart all of those birds, pull apart this tangle a little bit and give everything a little bit more space. Um, and then now I kind of, I'm interested in kind of this second piece of, okay, I've made space for all of these things. I'm not um, plagued by so much tension that I'm going 60 or 70 hours without sleeping or um, wow. and that's, yes. and that's true. You know, that when I'm talking about tension, I'm talking about a degree of internal conflict that will actually keep me awake for 70 yeah, hours. That might actually kill you. Might actually, and very, came very close to doing so. Yeah. Um, so the first step was to pictorialize that question or that dilemma. And then the second step was to untangle it a little bit, to give it a little bit more space. Hmm. Um, and then I think now what I'm kind of interested in is okay, are there other modes of thinking or perceiving that might open up different pathways that could take me out of the paradox completely? Um, If I know that, I think I said this before, but if I know that my experience is coming from assumptions in my mind, uh, what can I abandon um, in terms of my thought patterns or my assumptions or and or can I move into different modes or perception that maybe are centered outside of the mind, you know, move into the body or move into the heart, 
or perceive with a different organ of perception other than um, the mind, which by its very nature is very fragmentary. Mm-hmm. And whenever we have fragments, we have conflict. Um, mm. So that's kind of the frontier that I'm interested in exploring now. I'm not sure where that goes. Yeah, I mean, I guess we find out in your next pieces. <laughs> you know, yeah, I like hope. I'm, yeah, I'm sure that will continue to find its way out. Like, um, I mean, I think, right, that's sort of, you mentioned thinking about your work, like prayer, you know, that um, these paintings are prayer. And I think that is sort of like an active lived experience of working out for yourself, like externally, what seems to be going on internally. So I think a lot of artists, of course, then are sort of, yeah, I think I've heard you say too, just sort of like, that's the, it's like, yeah, an invocation, like what I'm doing in writing and what you're doing in painting often is um, materializing something that uh, we're wrestling with internally, maybe. And so it's not necessarily that like we've figured out an answer to any of the questions. And I think in general, to me, uh, I feel like life and my work are both less, they're less about um, finding an answer and more about like just the experience of pursuing the question. And so, yeah, I think in that way to me, and maybe you could reflect on that some too, just like how that acts as prayer for you as well. But I, I see that in terms of like, yeah, sort of putting something out into the universe that's happening in you internally and just sort of... um I love like also thinking about it too, I guess, like the way that you talk about, you know, you, your work is like incredibly like layered and you add and subtract both, I think. And for writers also, there's an, uh, a way that I think that we will write a thing. So it's addition, but then the edits, you know, are also a layer of that and subtracting what exists and sort of building up and coming back and, you know, doing that work sort of back and forth is this yeah, sort of dance of, um, I don't know, working working out the question, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful way of thinking about it in terms of, okay, I'm not so much looking for an answer as exploring a question. Um, and I, just to go back to, I think you asked me something about the, a connection between exploring a question and prayer. Yeah. And if I, I guess if I were going to boil the lilies down to a single question, like what my inquiry was, the question mm-hmm. would be, who am I? Mm-hmm. And I don't know that this, I think this part was in the artist statement on the wall, but I had a dream. So this body of work, um, or the crisis that kind of precipitated the body of work was my, I, I had a twin brother. I grew up with a, with a twin who was, mm-hmm. um, we were extremely close. I loved my twin more than, uh, I mean, this is one of these things that you try and put into language and you just can't, right. uh, I, I guess it, it might be more helpful to just, uh, rather than phrase it, even in terms of love of just like, he felt like he was an extension of myself. Somehow mm-hmm. we were living out a life that was, um, within some kind of mutual boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just very emotionally and uh, psychically enmeshed with this person. And uh, he, an adolescent, started struggling a lot with mental illness. And so there was 
a loss before the the final loss, which was just the the consciousness and the being that I trusted the most in the universe and that reflected me back. Um, I felt the most purely in the universe started to, I want to say deteriorate. Um, I might change that word later, but it, it was a deterioration. He um, started, he was no longer the person that I knew, the self-destructive behaviors, the addictions, the violence towards self and emotional violence towards others. It was just um, absolutely the most terrifying thing I have ever experienced in my entire life, maybe even more terrifying than his death and seeing his body without animus or without life. Mm -hmm. And then when we were 24, he died um, from an accidental drug overdose. And I just remember, I remember thinking years before he died, I can handle anything that happens, <laughs> except if Ross dies, like, I will not be able to continue. I, I'll just, I'll go mad or I'll just cease to exist. Like maybe some unconscious part of me believes that, oh, well, we were born in tandem. So we have to die in tandem. You just can't, I can't. I can't reconcile the thought that I could continue to exist in the world and he couldn't, or he, that we could somehow, uh, one of us could continue and one of us wouldn't. It just mm -hmm. didn't seem existentially possible. And then when it did happen, it was like every single second was challenging um, an absolutism that I had held on to, which is that this is not possible. And yet every single second that passed was saying it is possible because it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. And seeing his body was in a lot of ways for me or go, even attending his funeral felt like attending my own funeral. And it was deeply challenging in the most um, existential way. Like who, this person is dead. This person is me, but I'm also alive. Mm -hmm. So where did I actually end and he began? Like, yeah. how are we still connected? In which ways are we not? Yeah. Um, why is my name not on this funeral program also? And because there is a part of me that is, has been taken somewhere that I also in paradoxically cannot go. So I'm existing in two places at once. Um, and that's really dangerous. That's what yeah. really, really dangerous. And, and on a very a spiritual level, it's very, very dangerous. I, it took me many years to realize that um, there, I, my spirit had never actually walk in, walked away from his grave. My body walked away, but my spirit didn't. And the more years that passed, the farther the two got apart. Um, and at some point there was just a, you know, there was a breaking point and I had to go back and get the spirit and bring it back in inside me because uh, you, you can't, you can't live forever that way. Uh, spirits need a home. Um, they can't exist by themselves over the graves of, you know, dead people in cemeteries uh, alone and unattended. So, um, Anyways, a month after his death, I remember having this dream. And in the dream, I was walking along the edge of a cliff at night. It was very dark. There were 
clouds and mist and I looked up in the sky and there were two half moons. And at that moment, I fell over the edge of the cliff and I was falling, falling, falling. And the edge of the cliff was the edge of the dream. It was like the edge of consciousness or it was death mm -hmm. in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And I was looking around for something to hold on to, to get back up into the dream. And I was falling, 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 and there was nothing. And then suddenly this little pair of orange daylilies appeared in the blackness. And I just grabbed onto them. And somehow holding on to those two flowers, I pulled myself back up to the edge of the dream where there were still the two half moons. And there was this character and he was like waiting for me on the top of the cliff. And um, he was painted white with these, you know, all face paint and this elaborate costume. And I looked at him and I said, who are you? And he just laughed, he started laughing. He was laughing and laughing and laughing and he threw his head back and said, I don't know who I am, who are you? And I remember thinking in the dream was like, well, that, <laughs> that's a pretty good answer. Like, do any of us know who we are? Like, right. what is the answer to that? How are you supposed to answer that question when someone says, who are you? I had asked him an impossible question. Mm -hmm. um, and yet my, my psyche depended on finding an answer to that question. Um, mm. I had a very strong attachment to uh, somehow resolving that for myself. And that's really what, what the lilies were. And uh, Carolyn Mice, um, a spiritual author that I have read, you know, says that when you ask a question such as who am I or what is my purpose, that those aren't really questions. That's a spiritual invocation. Mm -hmm. Um, and that it's a prayer. And I thought, well, that's, that fits, that fits. Um, I'll just start making prayers and try and, um, see what kind of peaceable answer I might arrive at. And interestingly, um, and maybe not surprisingly, I, I never got to this the bottom of that question, who am I? Because the farther I kept going, the more I realized there was nothing uh, there to grab, right? You just start peeling away the layers. And um, eventually I realized, you know, it was kind of like what I was talking about. I had put myself into an impossible paradox. And the problem was, is that I was asking the wrong question. Um, mm. The way out of the paradox was to not ask who, it was to ask how, you know, how am I? Mm -hmm that's consider the lilies of the field and how they grow, you know, not who they are. Um, so yeah, I guess just one question took me to another question, but at least I feel like I've, I've got a question that is um, maybe oriented in a, oriented in a way that um, allows me to move through the world a little more peacefully and mm, how instead of who. Yeah, and, and a lot more freely. Because mm. um, with who, you just, you're just looking for identifiers. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when you're really in an identity crisis, you can't, none of those identifiers hold up, at least they haven't for me. Right. Oh, I'm a twin. Okay, but your twin died. So um, now you're not, you know. Oh, I'm an artist. 
but you're not painting right now. So are you like, if you never paint again, do you stop existing? I don't mm -hmm. think so. Um, if your twin dies, will you stop existing? I thought so, but turns out, no, also I continue existing. Uh, so it's just whatever I went to, and this is not an old, you know, an original thought. This is what all of the mystics teach, right? And um, I think it's what, I think the first step is just realizing, uh, yeah, realizing the right question. Okay, at least if I ask the right question, then I have it, I stand a chance that uh, finding peace, finding a way through, getting myself out of this dilemma and you know at the very least not being um in a state of perpetual uh danger psychological danger yeah it's hard. i have um a thousand things to say in response to all of those things <laughs> so i'm going to choose some places to go here and there but yeah i i mean the beginning of sort of what you were saying in terms of the experience of you know seeing your twin um no longer here and you're still here that like, I mean, I think that's why I started my piece that way. It was that like, you know, can funerals be held for the living? It was like, why, like, I'm not, am I alive? And should we? And I my, love that you started like, it that way, Brandy, because I actually did hold a funeral for myself and that is how oh. I saved myself. So I tell you, yes, oh. I can. Oh, that's um, amazing. I love that line. Yeah. I don't, um, I think it's probably spurred on by something that you said in your talk with Drew, but I just, yeah, I felt that so viscerally, this like, I think I'm alive, but I'm also dead. That's, a, that's you know, the next part of it is like, I'm alive, but not, and dead, but not, basically. Like, I'm, I'm neither, and I'm both, <laughs> and I'm being born again, but I'm also dying, and I'm, yeah, starving, but like, too full, you know, like, it was just... Yeah, it felt like a violent paradox. Like, I think the way you describe it as, like, dangerous is a visceral experience of what I felt seeing the work. Um, and, yeah, it was, I think there was so much in there for me. Like, I I kept trying to use visceral language because it did feel so, like, it, it felt somatic. Like, the experience of seeing them felt, yeah, I mean, they're sort of like clouds, but you feel like you're tumbling and you're just, like, it's yeah it's both beautiful but also horrific like it was just so clear to me that like it was yeah it felt like a yeah um violent uh like a kind of paradox that yeah like I said earlier that I, I think a lot of people aren't willing to feel um or like I think for you you were sort of it's not like you chose it but you were sort of forced to contend with that and I think the remarkable thing to me is that I think a lot of people, even forced to contend with that, either choose death or slice it so far out of their like out of their vision that like they never actually really fully deal with it. You just like yeah, you either die or you dissociate, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a simple way of putting <laughs> like, it: you die or you dis dissociate. Yeah, you and die, dissociate, or you find a way through. Yeah. And yeah, which is, I mean, that beautiful, you know, like it makes so much sense to me that the sort of final quote unquote, if you're sort of putting them in a series piece was the gate, you know, like this passageway that you find a way through. Um, I think, I think it was the final one. I don't remember how they're numbered. That's actually, exactly, yeah, but... that's actually the second one. Oh, interesting. Interestingly. <laughs> um, 
but it's okay because it's it's not linear. Yeah, that grief isn't linear, right? And um, there's gates all over the place. It's at the beginning and at the end. The gate was yeah, always there. So yeah, you're always passing through something. Um, yeah, in that sort of transitory space. But I hear you in terms of the like, you know, I I say in some of the the earlier episodes of the podcast that I think this sort of um, unbeknownst to me became a a way that I. Uh, created a container for my own paradox uh, that there were there have been things for me for far too long that have been warring with each other and it was a way of creating a container where those things could be held like you said and like a bit more harmony like that I didn't have to resolve them uh, necessarily I don't think that was ever the task but to see how they could all fit in the same universe and even if that was just like my internal universe that I needed something that helped me hold those things. Um, but I've also always loved just that, I mean, part of what I love about science and ecology and all those things, you know, like the the more I sort of dug into things like quantum physics and and all of that stuff, it was like, oh, yeah, we're realizing that like there's a, there's always a question under the question. So like even you saying, you know, like my first question was, who am I? And then I got to how am I? And then probably if you dig far enough under that, there's another question because the it's like there is no real resolution here. And that's sort of the really frustrating, beautiful thing that we have to live with, I think, as humans, that it's a um, the nature of the universe is paradox. But the way that I think you were in it, yeah, seemed it was just too dangerous. <laughs> it was uh, being too at war with those sort of contending forces, I guess. And I mean, it, or the actually, nature of the mind is paradox, right? I mean, can we look at that for, I'm kind of curious about that yeah. one because that's something I've been. Yeah. What do you mean by that um, for yourself? That the universe actually doesn't have contradictions, but the mm. contradiction is like um, an error of perception or a limit mm. of the mind, mm-hmm. right? Like I certainly don't, I don't see my cat struggling with paradox <laughs> no yeah, it's it, a, um, an error of consciousness or not even consciousness of i don't know of e- i mean of ego uh yeah um of psychological time is really interested mm-hmm. in um the construct of time psychologically and how that limits our understanding of the universe uh-huh. and of ourselves um yeah, it's, and I think just the fact that you, I mean, have you ever experienced you feel an internal conflict and then you switch the question or you switch how you're framing it or you expand your circumference or you make the home and then all of a sudden it's not there anymore. So uh-huh. that was, that was something we did. Right. You right? just invented it. Yeah. I mean, we as humans, right. I think that it is part of the human experience. Um, but I think there are humans who have found a way out of that. I think there are a handful of people who have gotten to the pivot point of everything, right? Like they're on both, they're able to be on both sides of the coin mm-hmm. um, at the, you know, at the still point of something turning and there is peace there from that mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. I imagine, I hope, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the mystic path. I feel like is to sort of find yourself there or find your way there or be on a on the walk or in the prayer toward that orienting question, maybe. I think that's interesting too, because I, the, um, 
I think it's the final question or like the question that starts the second half of the piece that I wrote in response to the ear, ear paintings was um, something like, is death not simply uh, life at full volume? Mm. And I think that sort of speaks to what I'm hearing you say, which is like, a, I don't know, I just had this sense like, yeah, I, I think uh, limited by our perception, I guess, like meaning... I think we're so afraid of death. I think we have all these, you know, um, preconceived notions of what death means and, you know, that it's um, maybe an end to something and at best a beginning of something else. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, I had this like w wild experience of like seeing your work in that gallery and just sort of going, there is so much here. Like there's so much feeling that, yeah, it does sort of feel like it might just sort of like tear you apart. Um, but there was part of me that just sort of saw it and thought like, I, yeah, um, I'm not totally sure like our human bodies or consciousness or ego or whatever that might be is able to actually hold all, all of the allness of the universe at once. And so we do, like, I think it's sort of like a grace almost to mm -hmm. limit our perception in the experience of life because it would be too much otherwise. But like maybe in some post-death experience, it's actually an ability to hold all of that mm -hmm. and not feel torn apart um, by it. And so it felt like, yeah, I think the way that I've been thinking of time for a while now too, that like my, um, again, like my friend Lauren recently, or you know, probably a few months ago, we were on a walk and she was like, aren't you so scared of death? And I was like, I don't know if this is like my sort of faith upbringing and however I've like wrestled with that to come to where I am now. But um, there's something that makes me feel and I think also even weirdly science that like I think the parts of quantum physics and such that sort of teach us about, you know, whether it's string theory or whatever it is that it's we, we realize that sort of um, we realize that our perception is limited. Like that there are actually other dimensions, but we can't see them. And perhaps death is actually present at all times. But our our perception is limited in terms of what we can actually visually see. And so time and perception and all these things, like there are different things that sort of constrain what we're able to actually, uh, you know, experience. And so, yeah, it was like, I don't know, it was it felt like you had sort of entered that land that was like, I'm feeling all those things at once. So I'm both in heaven and hell. Yeah. And I'm being torn apart. Yeah. Yeah. Viscerally torn torn apart. Viscerally torn apart. It's crowded in here, Brandy. Like we gotta make <laughs> we gotta make some space. Like you used that word emptying at the you know, earlier on in the conversation. And that's a word I've been thinking about a lot. Um, yeah. got it make yeah that's my cat <laughs> gotta make gotta make more space yeah um, mm -hmm. yeah i you, oh you were talking about the you know the um did you say is death life at full volume yeah and maybe those two things are happening all at once and i i just wanted to share something that i keep coming back to which is um, another dream. Dreams are important sources of um, surprise. Surprise that you live in the liminal. It's another. It's just another space between. <laughs> another space. I know, but it's um, it's been a lifesaver. 
my brother appeared to me in a dream and he, I mean, I dreamt about Roth probably every time I fell asleep for at least the first year. And even frequently now, if I remember dreams, um, most dreams I remember he's in them. But this one was a little bit different in the sense of I didn't feel like I was dreaming about him. It's like I was dreaming with him. You know, I love how they say that wow. in some languages too, right? You don't say dream about, you say dream with. Um, but I knew I was dreaming. He knew I was dreaming. We both knew that he was dead. Right. And the first thing we did, we just hugged each other. We just embraced and I was holding him. Um, and I didn't want to let go. And I also knew that I didn't have much time because I knew that it was requiring a lot of energy on his part to be able to get into my mm. dream and that he would be limited. So finally, at some point, I kind of, you know, pushed myself, untangled myself from him. And I just said, so tell me, you know, what happened? Like, what happened after you? Like, what happened after you died? Like, tell me yeah. what's going on. Do tell. Do tell. <laughs> So I had a lot of I had a lot of anger with my brother also at the time, right? For um, kind of having left me in this uh, situation and this mess to kind of resolve. And I, you know, I felt like at the very least he owed me an answer about about this. You know, the least he could do was uh, give me some answers that could help me um, yeah. find some peace. So it's like you know, tell me. And he just started doing this. He just started making these you know, like figure a, eight uh, like in the air symbol. Well, yeah, I didn't realize that at the time. I just uh. saw him making figure eights in the air and not answering my question. And I got really upset. And I said, just tell me what, you know, oh my gosh, are you really going to be this esoteric? Like, can you tell me what happens? And he was like, <laughs> he's Emily. like, I'm basically an astral projection. What, yeah, how do you not want me to be esoteric? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, Emily, just this. And he kept making the figure eights. And he had this expression on his face that he he was very funny. He was very funny, very performative, very um, captivating person. And he had this expression on his face. And then when I woke up, I remember calling my friend and telling him about this dream. And I was so upset. I was like, I had him right there. And he wouldn't give me the answer. He said, Emily, he's giving you the infinity sign. He's just telling you, it just keeps going. Um, and he didn't use his words, of course, because there were no words, right? He was in a dimension that was, that didn't have the limits of mind or tools of mind, such as language. Mm -hmm. Um and I feel like the only way he could, you know, convey that to me was through that symbol. Hmm. Um, that it is just a continuum. There is no real threshold in the way that we kind of see it as being a very distinct threshold. And that just leaves me kind of feeling, you know, uh, you know, not to be morbid, but kind of excited about death. Like, not that I'm going to be in a hurry to get there, but kind of like, all right, I'm right there. Like, here we go. Mm. You're going to find out what's, um, yeah. what's next. Like, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. What an adventure. What an adventure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's when Lauren asked me that question, you know, like, aren't you scared of death? I was like, I don't know. Like, I feel like based on everything I've heard or, you know, we're all just conjecturing you know like um but I feel like sort of my deepest 
sense of it is that, yeah, it does just, it's just sort of a, yeah, it's a transformation more than it is an ending. And yeah, just that like our perception becomes shifted, I guess. So I don't feel too much like, like maybe I might lose my like physical body or something, but like, I don't, I don't know, it just seems like an alteration in consciousness, I guess, or maybe an expansion of mm. consciousness. Um, but yeah, that, that felt that felt like the right sort of question, I think, to start the second half of my my piece because it, yeah, it just, um, I don't know, it, ha it had never struck me the same way before that like maybe part of that perception is like a limitation in our human selves of like actually being able to hold or contend with the depth of that kind of feeling. And it, it just, um, in, in a way that's not tearing us apart you know, that we're at war with it, but that can actually like really be with all of that um, in this, you know, sort of way. Uh, I'm doing a figure eight sign again for anyone who's just listening. Um, but yeah, I, I think the other stuff that I really felt sort of in experiencing your paintings was a, um, I think two things, two primary things. One, like one of my first experiences, I think also because of the like nature. So you're, those at least are, like five foot by seven foot, I think, pieces of paper. And so they're they're pretty massive. And um and it's abstract. And walking around at first, I think, in the gallery, I just felt like not just in terms of format, I guess, but also just in terms of um, I don't know, whatever you had tapped into, felt very like Hilma Offklem. Yeah, so I haven't seen them in person, but I'm familiar with the work. Yeah, I've never seen them in person either, but there's an incredible documentary that's about her work um that I got so much out of that also just seemed like I there was there were pieces of it that sort of described her work that I'd heard for the first time in that documentary where it was talking about how um she f she sort of built a visual language, I think, in the same way I've heard you talk about the fact that you've sort of made a visual language. And that's like some of those things appear in these pieces, like the hummingbird and um, the organs. Uh, and Yeah, the organs and bones and that sort of stuff um, where she had sort of consistent, you know, language throughout visual language throughout her work but also in a way that she described her work as basically like messages from the divine that people weren't ready for. <laughs> like she legitimately was sort of like a uh, sort of calling her future shot, which was like, I probably won't be alive by the time people actually will understand what's happening here. But I feel like I'm getting some sort of mystical messages from the divine that like people just aren't quite ready to take in. And yeah, I felt something similar in yours. I think because again, like because of the, like hers are also sort of vertically, like they're taller than they are wide in most cases, and they're pretty large and they're abstract. And so in format, in a lot of ways, it just felt very familiar, um, like really resonant with her work. And then, yeah, also in just that, like sort of not only building a visual language, but like tapping into some sort of mystical divine thing that's happening behind what we can currently see. Um, so, yeah, was, I'm that's not a question. <laughs> sort of <laughs> stating hey, that out okay. loud. No, I, I'm loving hearing all of your connections and associations. Mm. And then I guess I have a. I wonder too, like, what is it that we're calling mystical? It's almost like 
somehow in using that word, we're making it separate. Yeah, totally. Ourselves maybe. And I almost wonder like, well, was she getting messages from the mystical? Is this other thing? Um, or are we all inherently mystical and she's right. just open and emptied yeah. enough to, to sense it? You don't. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's the quote I use at the beginning of the Andreas Weber episode that's from Wendell Berry, where he's talking about, like, I'd like to do away with these terms of mystical and sacred or, um, you know, mundane or whatever the case may be. I forget exactly how the quote goes, but it's like. Or supernatural. I have a lot of problems with that one, too. Mm. You know, other than like, OK, it's super and it's natural. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And what do we I think, you know, toward the beginning of our conversation, I said something about how I'm. Like I'm big on the idea of resacralizing matter. That's sort of the same thing. It's just going like anytime we call something sacred and something else, um, you know, sacrilegious or, you know, mundane or um, evil or something, you know, it's like it's inherently making everything else like it's it's just like not sacred somehow. I'm like, I don't know. Like, I feel like all matter is sacred. And so like the ethereal and matter are one and the same, but they've like come together at a point in time to form my desk or my brain or, you know, <laughs> uh, the concrete outside. And maybe more, maybe things have more or less aliveness to them. Like that's something I think about all the time too. Like is concrete less alive than trees? <laughs> I wonder about that too, Brandy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it is. I think that's why we feel different in nature than we do walking around on concrete. I don't know. Um, but stone, I guess somehow stones feel alive to me. Stone, stone, yes. Yeah. And and sand and concrete is really sand, right? It's just somehow we've... It's almost yeah, like that sugar. One's harder to tap. Yeah, it's harder to tap into maybe because it's been fabricated or reworked. Or... Right. And I, I think that's sort of what I mean is like when I think about sugar, I was just sort of thinking about also back to an, another episode with my friend Asia Dorsey and like she's like often talks about how like the way that we eat sugar today is su like hyper refined, you know, basically all the life has actually been taken out of it. Mm -hmm. Like all of the original fiber and nutrients and minerals that come in cane sugar is very, very different. And it responds very, very differently in our bodies and actually does um, make us more or less alive based on which kind of that we're eating. And so yeah, I think there's maybe something about like the fabrication of it or ultra processing that sort of can remove life in some way or like mm, decrease life. I'm not sure, but I, I do feel like there's some sense of like some things are more or less alive. It's why we feel more or less alive in like prisons versus like the wilderness, you know. Um, yeah, there's something actually about matter that matters I, guess. Yeah. <laughs> hmm, I wonder how we got that word yeah exactly um but yeah the other thing I think um that I was gonna say is like a yeah I think that like excess of feeling that you're describing that feels violent there was something that was like um oh I guess even I'll start with this um not long actually before hopping on this interview with you I was, I had opened up Instagram and the first thing I saw was a post by um, this person I know, China, who was posting a photo about losing her dog. Um, it appears her dog has just passed away. And 
the first line she used was, what is it like to lose your shadow? And I was like, wow, that's a killer question, but also um, probably really resonant with what it's like to lose a twin that you're talking about. There's like this externalized part of who you are that you can like, like a shadow you can see on the ground and it's like always with you and, you know, constantly there. Right. And then um, you spend your rest of your life like Peter Pan, like running yeah. after it, trying to. Yeah, totally. Throw it back on somehow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the like sort of the visceral part of it really, I think I started thinking about like carnies, carnies, like mm. carnivals, like people mm -hmm. who are at, you know, like just they live their lives working at a carnival. And it was like um, there was something I think about the grotesque in your work, like you know, the like bleeding heart and stuff sewn into other things. And like, yeah, that feeling of being very visceral. But I think there was something that struck me in terms of like, again, I think sort of going back to that, like not a lot of people sort of allow them that de themselves that depth of feeling because <laughs> it does feel like it will tear you apart. Um, but like when you're actually willing to go there that like, yeah, the feeling is so intense that it's like, yeah, I think part of what I wrote in response to is just like a like you don't really know what to do with that once you come back to back to earth, you know, like once you're out. Of you're it. ruined for the mundane. I think yeah, you're you ruined said. for the mundane. <laughs> I love that line, too. Yeah, that it's. Um, I And that's what I mean, I guess, when I'm thinking about carnies, where it's like these folks who like maybe experience life in such an intense way all the time, you know, like the grotesque and the beautiful are like hand in hand in like a carnival you know like in stuff you see on like i guess like movies you see of carnivals that are like you know the sort of this uh the super short person or the sort of like weirdly tall person or the person who's growing a beard on their arm or you know like it's just everything's like a bit out of place sort of and um like they don't quite fit in and I sort of felt like that. Like, it's like once you sort of experience that sort of depth of feeling that then like you sort of come back to like, quote unquote, normal life. And you're like, I don't know that I quite fit in here. And I just sort of I, you know, I wondered if that's an experience of yours consistently now sort of after, you know, it seems like having processed a lot of that and sort of come at least in part out of the violence of the sort of inner war you were experiencing in that amount of grief but like now sort of feel this sense of like, I still feel like a little bit of a weirdo in normal life. Like I just don't quite fit. But like even that is sort of the, like you're saying, like you're trying to like very hard, it sounds like to do the work of being like everything fits, you know, like um, I'm not this and someone else is that, or I'm not weird and something else is normal. Like it just, um, it all just has a place here. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I just sort of had, I don't know, I just was having these sort of visions of people who like sort of have to live on the outside of society, you know, in this like intense container of feeling because it's like the only place you know how to like actually survive, if that makes any sense at all. Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. Um, and I, I think you kind of hit it right on the head too when you're saying, you know, it is about finding a place for all of it, right? Not I found myself in that position where I, you know, I can go one of two pathways. I can isolate myself even further by framing this in a sense of like, oh, I've had these experiences and now, and now what I have to come back and 
uh, you know, pay bills online or um, go to the grocery store, do returns right. on Amazon, like, you know, <laughs> um, you know, just to make the wheels of life continue just to like function. Yeah. Um, but I also think, I mean, I guess I think, I think a couple of things. I think one, I try and think about um, just resonance, like, okay, it all exists, but I, can I find what things do I have resonance with? And can I just move into those spaces? Because um, I know I'm not the only person who's had these experiences and who mm-hmm. values certain questions. One reason I'm sure that we're talking now, right? Like, mm-hmm. and listening to your other conversations, like, I don't doubt that you have found resonance mm-hmm. um, in places. I mean, I think one of your guests was even, ta- or maybe it was you, was even talking about finding um, a community, all like a psychological community of people yeah. that you know are yeah, thinking Ashley, about things. Jane Lewis. Like, yeah. And you know, maybe they're dead. Maybe they existed, you know, in fourth century BC, you know, BC China. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that there are other people or other, you know, embodied beings who are um, interested in exploring the boundary waters. Uh-huh. And, and it's a really, I think, a, a gift or a really poetic position to be in that I'm actually really grateful for now is to be able to straddle different um, different worlds or different realms you just have access to so much more mm-hmm. um, so much more what I, I mean I don't even know exactly what the point of that would be except that it feels alive like, yeah it feels that's alive what I was to gonna me. say actually was it a yeah it's it's like more aliveness because I think yeah, I guess like my sort of take on it is like it's not necessarily like, you know, um, intense folks are over here and the normal folks, you know, like the, the less intense folks are over here, like the carny people and, you know, sort of normal everyday, quote unquote, normal everyday society. But it's it is I think the lived experience of it does often feel like it's not like it's not like the carny folks don't accept themselves. And I'm using carny as like a very um general world word to describe all of us basically that's like um but you know that sort of intensity of feeling it's like um society can't like so much of society i think often just like can't hold a con- like isn't a container that can hold both of those things and so it's like there has to be like you know some sort of like um Buffer. yeah there's a separation where you go like you guys can stay over there but we're going to stay sort of over here um in this different world and um and I think mm, but didn't you write something also about the artist like ferrying people across those boundaries yeah they were ready to yeah and I think that's sort of like you said the gift like the the job or the gift of artists or people who have just explored those sorts of deep waters to translate or to shuttle people back and forth Shuttle, right. in, in ways that feel manageable to them. You know, like there's good reason that people don't want to go there. It's incredibly right. traumatic what you went through. Like it's all about dosage. Yeah. So it's dosage, but like, it's like, um, I just, I know that there are like communities in society across time and across the world that, um, live there so consistently that a lot of people aren't willing to go to, which again is sort of how I end the piece and going like artists often, I think, are those people who are willing to like 
spend so much time in those deep waters, but like translate and dose it out to people when they feel ready to navigate, even like tipping their toes in maybe. And um, yeah, that also, like I said, even like once you've been to that depth of feeling, even though you're sort of annoyed by the fact that you have to like make an Amazon return or go to the grocery store or clean your toilet, you know, like all of those things that like are just sort of the like regular quote unquote everyday life. Um, that like you also learn to not only sort of hold regularity, I guess, or normalcy or something. Um, and of course, all these are terrible words to describe an experience, but, <laughs> um, but like, yeah, um, I guess we learn maybe also um, to hold the mundane in a way that's also sacred. Um, I was just going to say that. Isn't there a way we can somehow find cleaning the toilet to be sacred also? Right. Um, Which I think it sort of comes back to your original stuff, right? Around like a living in prayer, I guess. Like, is that not what living in prayer is? To make to live for the, instead of who am I, the how am I, if the how is a state of being that is consistently, um, yeah, living in a space of prayer, that like doing the dishes and having a conflictual conversation with someone or going to the post office is actually a state of being that feels like prayer. Right, exactly. And, you know, that, what do I have to look up? Um, you know, the line in the, I forget who says it to who, pray without ceasing. Um, Paul, maybe? Yeah, Paul says, um, it is, but who it's in, forget who he says it to, but he says, pray without ceasing. And there's this um, book called The Pilgrim. It's an anonymous, I'm not sure if you're familiar, it's an anonymous uh it's by an anonymous Russian author and um, maybe it's not that old 19th century. In any case, it's an anonymous work and, and the whole, I haven't read The Way of the Pilgrim, but I've read uh, Salinger's Brainy and Zoe, which is um, refers to the pilgrim as kind of a um, central thread of the book. Um, but in the book, the, the pilgrim is asking the question, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Mm-hmm. How does one do that? And he goes on this journey to figure out um, how one can be in a constant state of prayer and as far as I understand it the answer that he comes up with after meeting various uh, sages um, is the equivalent to the the Hindu word japam j-a-p-a-m I think sometimes it's spelled j-a-p-a but it's essentially the idea that if you recite the name of God in any language Hmm. um, enough times um, that your heartbeat will actually sync with um, quote unquote God. And mm-hmm. so just by living and breathing and having blood circulating through your body with every pulse, you are in that state of prayer. Mm-hmm. And um, this was actually when I went to do the lilies, what I made this, I made this my practice was that every time I went down to the studio and started painting, I was going to have um this recitation of prayer that I would do, you know, all mm. seven or eight hours, however long I was in there. Wow. So that even at the end of the day, if I ended up with nothing but, or at the end of the three years, ended up with nothing but um, 
maybe I sanded everything out back to, you know, I painted and painted for three years and then sanded everything back out to white and there was nothing left imagery wise. I still had, you know, I, I logged or clocked certain amount of hours um, of recitation of, of the name of God in hopes of getting to a, to a place of um, more harmony. Mm. And yeah, I suppose when one, I, I can't say that I actually arrived at that place. I, I arrived to a safer place, maybe not to that place of complete um, union or, yeah, I guess union would be the best word. But it is something that I, uh, that I still hold really close in my heart as an intention. I, mm. How do I pray without ceasing? it's a beautiful question and I can one that I continue to try and do yeah do you do you have practices like daily practices that sort of get you in that space or sort of feel like they're ritual that you use in order to be in a state of prayer yeah so I had that one for many years where I was just reciting and I used the Jesus prayer which is you can use any um name of God but Christianity was how I would raised and it was also what was used in uh, the way of the pilgrim so it just felt uh familiar and comfortable to me it was just lord jesus christ have mercy on me over and over and over again i think the mercy part really resonated at the time too because i was yeah, really sure. asking for help so yeah. just lord jesus christ have mercy on me lord jesus help. christ have mercy on me lord <laughs> jesus christ have mercy on me seven yeah. hours a day um and then I'm not, I, I don't actually remember why, maybe I kind of stopped a little bit when the prayer paintings ended, but I've been doing um, another practice called centering prayer, mm -hmm. um, which kind of derived from um, the Trappist monk, but it's a practice of basically, as we were saying, trying to empty oneself to the presence of, or making space for the presence and action of God. That's how they, you know, centering prayer is making, inviting the presence and action of God. And in order for that presence to really fully inhabit you or to um, move through you, you have to empty oneself, you know, the way Jesus did in the desert, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I've been trying that practice, which has been, I think, really helpful for me. Um, in terms of getting some separation, you know, a little bit of separation from conflicts and from pain. Kind of giving myself over to something larger. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a, a kind of Taoist image of like people or beings or even like the trees and the rocks just being like holes in a flute or being apertures. And that the winds of heaven, as they move through, are kind of playing on all those holes or apertures. Mm. And it, it, it takes an enormous amount of um, pressure and off of me and relieves an enormous amount of tension to be like, oh, I just have to be an aperture. <laughs> if I just open myself, mm. then there's mm -hmm. something else out there that's um, just going to show up and, you know, play the tune. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was telling someone recently that, like, I've had conversation with my friend Julianne, uh, where sometimes we get into a place where one of us asks, or um, I remember her asking at one point, you know, 
I'm afraid that like I'll run out of things to say, you know, or like, you know, my art will dry up at some point. Maybe that'd be good. Maybe it'd be peaceful. <laughs> Maybe it would be. But my my sort of thought was like, I I guess that's like only true if like it's your job to actually create the art instead of just being like a vessel through which, you know, the art comes. Because um, I, mm-hmm. I have to believe that like whatever's, you know, giving myself over to something bigger than myself and whatever's behind. Isn't going to run out of things. All of this, like the generative nature of creativity in the universe is not going to run out of things to say. Um, and so if, if my, if I see it as my role or like my posture, I guess, to show up all the time in a state of being an aperture or, you know, a vessel, then I don't think I have too much to fear other than, right. you know, losing connection with that thing. Cause that would be tragic. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And yet, right. Like, and we can know that consciously <laughs> like, okay. Like I remember having this thought before I started the prayer paintings where I went up to Alaska and right before I started the prayer, the prayer paintings, my mother died very, very unexpectedly. And so I was sort of thrust back into, I don't want to say thrust into the crisis anew, but things became a little bit more urgent. It was just a compilation of things and Mm -hmm. the grief started intensifying and the questions became more urgent and the conflict became more extreme. And again, it was about space. I don't have enough space to hold all of these feelings because I didn't even know at the time that they were feelings because my mind had cut me off from my heart. So Mm. it just kind of manifested as this constant tension in my head and I didn't know where it was coming from and Mm. where it was coming from is that there was a plug in the flow of the system the heart had been cut out of the conversation so to speak Mm. Um, because what the heart had to say was just too devastating for the rest of the system Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. and I remember going I was like I'm just going to go to the wildest rawest places I can place I can find I'm going to ask for help and well there just is not where you go when you want to take it easy. It's where you go when you need to find something that pulses at the same beat as your soul. Exactly. Like yeah. yeah. And to learn like what can survive here, you know, like something yeah. survives here. Um, turns it turns out, you know, I went to end up kind of zooming out on the satellite and I just wanted to be immersed in ice. I had, in hindsight, I have some ideas about why I wasn't quite sure at the time. I just wanted to be in this um, kind of frozen environment, reflective environment. And I zoomed out and found this um, Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Kluane National Park and it straddles uh, Eastern Alaska and Yukon territory. Um, and I just went, you know, for three weeks, I was like, I'm just going to walk, I'm going to walk, I'm going to drive, I'm going to do nothing, I'm going to mm. say my prayer. And I had this, like, I knew at the time I was in a dangerous place. And I knew that to get out of the dangerous place, I would have to get to a point where I, where I would be willing. And I remember saying this to friends, I would have to be willing to, if asked by the universe or by the thing that plays through the apertures to give up painting, to never pick up a paintbrush again, that I would be willing to do that. And people just thought that was the strangest thing to say, well, why, why would, you know, why would God or why would the universe ask you to stop painting? And it's like, I'm not saying that they would, that's not the important point. The important point is that would I be willing, would would I be willing, right? Could I be that unafraid of letting go of my identity, right? Because like my twin and art were, I guess, the two kind of main pillars of my identity. And one had been taken away by force and 
or not by choice. And the second one um, I had elected to hold on to and to perhaps hold on to even tighter in the wake of his death. Mm. And I felt like if I'm really going to be free, like if I'm really going to be out of this paradox, if I'm really going to feel the kind of freedom that I know I want to feel in this life, I would have to be willing to give that up. And I think kind of like you said, right? I, oh, I don't have anything to be scared of if I'm going to open myself. But that's a really big task, actually. Yeah, it's pretty so terrifying, actually. actually. <laughs> it is actually really terrifying. And we have yeah. lots of things in place to keep us from doing everything but that, right? There's yeah. all kinds of protective yeah, all of society psyche, exists. Yeah. Everything. So actually, it takes an enormous amount of courage to even attempt to dismantle the barriers mm-hmm. to that. And a lot of that is work that isn't necessarily seen um, mm-hmm. or talked about, we do it in very private waters and very private worlds. Mm-hmm. And, and it's no, yeah, it's no small thing. I think it's perhaps, you know, the most courageous thing a human being can do is to say, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to let go of these things that define myself and trust that something else will play through me, but I'm going to I'm going to try. I'm going to try and step into that meadow or try and um, exist in that space. Yeah. So you said something earlier too, I'm forgetting now, but it made me think in a similar way of, I think it's Moses and the burning bush that, you know, Moses asks the same question basically that you ask of the person with a painted face in your dream that, you know, who are you? And God's response is just, I am, which Sort of like your brother's figure eight is just like an infuriating answer. (laughs) (laughs) But when you really like, I think, do the work to work through all of that noise, maybe, that I feel like that is sort of the truest answer that it's a, I don't know, it's just a, it's a figure eight. It's just, I am like, I, I am your desk. I am your toilet and the toilet paper. I am you know, the cloud I am, like, I just, I am. And so are you sort of like, we, we just are, you know? Um, and it is, it takes a lot of work, I think, to not only, um, be okay with like, I guess like, I mean, that has no identities in it. Right. It has no, like, God isn't like, I'm the bush. I'm, you know, I'm, a thing up in the heavens that you can see or like a a golden calf. Like I'm not anything that can be sort of put into form um, other than Jesus, I suppose. (laughs) Like it was, was, I think also just an an act of grace to like, you know, show us the divine and human form, I guess, if whatever you believe about that story. Um, But yeah, I think that's like the I am of it is an interesting, I think the, I don't know, I, I guess like, you know, I think I hear you saying or have heard you talk about the, like, it's just, yeah, all the ancient mystics get there, you know, <laughs> like, it's like, eventually you just sort of realize that, um, and yeah, it takes a lot of, an awful lot of courage and um, work to sort of get past all that noise, but get, but to get to a place where like you're willing to get let go of the markers of your identity, where you're willing to go, I don't know. I think it's just one big question. Like I don't think there is a resolution. <laughs> I think um, we're just living in a constant question, and isn't that gorgeous and terrible and human and divine? <laughs> and like it's just an endless series of ands, you know, both and. But 
I, I hope eventually, yeah, like a way that we find peace in those and harmony, I guess, to some degree in those like sort of seeming contradictions that it's like contradiction is just there is no contradiction in the fact that there is contradiction. I don't know. Now I'm just rambling into nonsense. But um, yeah, I guess um, I think there is a form of peace eventually. Like it's it's infuriating at first maybe to hear I am as an answer. And then eventually when you do maybe when you sit with enough that you realize how much freedom is there also. You know, exactly. Like, the there is a spaciousness part. in that, like you're saying, I guess. I think that's what keeps me kind of, um, you know, pointing my my compass in that direction is that kind of, um, I feel like I've had moments where I've experienced that kind of freedom, like moments where I've, um, I, I hadn't, when I was 18, I had a very sudden, very severe onset autoimmune illness mm. uh, my senior year of high school. And I was almost instantly crippled like within the course of a couple of weeks all of my wow. joints swelled up to like two or three times their size and it was just an excruciating pain and there was nothing that any of the doctors had seen that they could do and I was that before or after Ross had that died? was before yeah okay. that was um senior year of high school which actually was the reason I ended up going to art school instead of trying to become a photographer for National Geographic so another one of these <laughs> Um, interesting uh, ways in which, um, you know, the curse becomes a gift. Mm -hmm. But that, this is how I, I first got introduced to meditation was I remember going to the bookstore and looking under the autoimmune disease section and reading about the connection, you know, mind-body connection, which is kind of my first introduction into this territory or these concepts and the idea of, you know, stress being uh, related to immune function. Mm -hmm. and it had suggested you know certain visualization exercises and meditation exercises and I was just in so much pain that I was I couldn't do much else so I was like well I'm going to try this and my dad gave me a book called Conquest of Mind by Eknath S. Warren which was the first book I read on meditation and I read it and I just started practicing twice a day for probably 45 minutes or maybe even longer wow and within a couple of weeks, I noticed enough improvement that I was like, okay, there's something here it was enough to keep me going. And I kept meditating and meditating and meditating. And I ended up, my goal was really just to heal my body, but I ended up getting myself into this space that was um, I somehow just tumbled into it where I kind of felt outside of psychological time. I felt like I was mm. just had somehow, I don't know what happened in that space, what happened, but I, it was a feeling of freedom and a feeling of synchron, like being in sync with everything around me perpetually, mm. um, that my, my body remembers that feeling. It eventually waned when my brother started having a lot of psychological symptoms. Um, the center of that space couldn't hold. I think I was too connected to his well being, and I got pulled out of it and started, you know, feeling anxious again, but there was a period of a quite sustained period where everything just felt smooth and seamless and just was from one moment to the next, everything was fresh. And my body remembers that feeling, even though I don't remember how I got there. Um, 
And I think once the body knows something, like it doesn't, like that memory isn't going away. Like there's mm-hmm. something in me that wants to um, experience that space again. Maybe it wouldn't be in the same way because, you know, I have a different accumulation of experiences over the last mm-hmm. you know, 20, 21 years. Um, but the freedom that I experienced in that space it's almost like I feel like, okay, well, my twin died, my mom died, my dad died. It's just like it was my immediate family. It's like I'm in, you know, I was in my mid 30s and it was just me left. So it's kind of like, well, you might as well just skate. Like, you might as well just go for it. Like, everyone's already over on the other side. Like, you're not going to have any obligations of taking care of aging parents or crazy siblings. Or, I mean, you're in this very um, tragic and also, um, uniquely poetic position of being able to explore some of these you know radical states of consciousness if if I want to if I choose to and I just kind of feel like I want to say yes to that like maybe maybe I am ruined for the for the mundane it's like okay well if I've seen that it's possible um why not put my attention and my interest in that direction if it's the most beautiful thing I've experienced or if what the mystics are, you know, reading about that is the most beautiful thing that humans have been able to experience. And, you know, I want that. I want that too. Yeah, um, get as far as I can in the body that I have right now. Cause I just, it's not that I don't have anything left to lose, but I just feel like there's nothing left I could lose that would Yeah, I think I said it before. I felt like I could handle anything except the loss of broth, and I handled that plus more. So mm-hmm. um, I don't really care what the cost is anymore. Yeah, what a terrible, tragic gift. Um, yeah, it's, I think I've been reflecting a lot recently and thinking about the conversation I had with Andreas Weber about aliveness. There's a portion of our conversation in that podcast episode where he talks about sort of like the right deaths and right is not the right word, but um, like there's a way that we sort of die when we, like we choose the wrong deaths, I guess, like to be sort of cut off from the world or cut off from each other or cut off from whatever that um, energy is, I guess, that you were finding in meditation. Um and then there's good deaths, like ones that um, feel necessary and nourishing and helpful. And I think that exists in nature, both good and bad deaths uh, all over the place, I guess. And again, good and bad are uh, judgment words that <laughs> are terrible descriptors, but hopefully you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there's a liberation at I hear like, yeah, you've got, you have a spaciousness by way of tragedy, which is not how anyone would probably choose to find it. But nonetheless, is something that like catapulted you into a space that is sort of ruined for the mundane. Like why, why would you live another way now? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It almost feels like there is, there, there isn't a choice. Um... Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I think I would say the same thing. It's like, I think, and I think that's what I mean. It's like, you're sort of ruined for it. Otherwise it's like, 
I mean, even the quote I use, I guess, from Audre Lorde in the piece that I wrote in response to your paintings, you know, that was like, once you experience that depth of feeling out of self-respect, like you can no longer exactly. expect anything less for yourself. Um, because, because I, yeah, I think that's being fully alive. Anything else feels like sort of an existence where you're actually half dead. Right. You're accepting death before death. Right. Yeah. And at the same time, I'm also trying to learn how to be a little bit more comfortable in like middle ground spaces too, not between spaces, which I'm very comfortable right. in, but the middle ground, um, which, you know, I'm not super... like to go between extremes, right? In those yeah. kind of betweens. And I, you know, my therapist very helpfully was pointing out that um, perhaps those just kind of mundane, those quote unquote mundane spaces or middle ground spaces or, um, you know, less than full volume spaces yeah um, might be helpful for me to be a little bit more comfortable in them at times <laughs> so i can you know restore and um, yes yeah. let my body rest let my mind rest so yeah you don't have to be in constant hyper vigilance or hyper feeling or any of those things yeah it's a in some way even because my friend Lauren and I have also gone through a lot of autoimmune issues. And so we talk often about the way that autoimmune issues affect your, that are spiritual in nature, like the sort of underlying problem feels actually spiritual, sort of. Um, and maybe like stress and physical disease as a manifestation of your spiritual posture or something. Mm -hmm. um, but we've been having a lot of discussion about that because we tend to be people who are like, where's the next ride? You know, like, where's, you know, put me at the front of the roller coaster. I want like to experience that depth of feeling again, you know, but like, yeah, I think growth for me and probably also for her. And it sounds like what you're saying, I guess, as I'm reflecting, I hope mirroring back to you accurately is like a, yeah, just learning to live in, not in an extreme and that it's okay. And like that is actually as sacred as the other things. Right. But, because that's also kind of an, I am like, it's, I am is in the middle space too, not just the extremes. And like to have a real sense of peace, which at this point of my life is really uh, peace and freedom. I think those two things kind of go together. Because when I'm talking about freedom, I'm talking about freedom from mental um, tensions or conflicts, which I could, it's kind of the equivalent to peace. I, being free of yeah. conflict, internal conflict would be a safety. Yeah. yeah. Um, for, for, again, I don't see for that. I, I feel like um, there isn't necessarily a contradiction between that and depth of feeling, right. right? You could have a real sense of a depth of peace, having known all of these extremes and made a home for all of them. And now you're living in that wilderness. Peacefully. Right. Yeah. I think that actually that's, I've had more of that experience recently that like, um, I've been going through all this stuff, I feel like, around, I felt like my spiritual work was sort of letting go of control. Like, I think in my trauma, I learned a, a posture, like my body learned, like you were saying, your body sort of remembers the feeling of being in that place of freedom. And um, I forget what word you use, you know, but like that, just that, whatever it was, that place you access when you were meditating, um, my body, my body has like a constant recollection of um, hypervigilance and stress and control. And if I'm not sort of constantly like, 
Um, or if I hadn't been constantly sort of like over scheduling my day or, you know, like every sort of moment was like sort of managed, I guess, that um, like I fall into a state of like internal chaos. And and then I like it's like I'm I'm neither is good because I'm getting like too overstressed in managing over managing my life or if I let go of it, my body feels um terrified and so then i'm also in a state of stress um and trauma and like sort of re-traumatizing myself and so i was like i've been sort of describing to people that they're um my close friends that it felt like that sort of sense of control was actually my sickness like it just felt like that was the internal war that i was experiencing and it was actually physically making me sick um which makes sense because i think hypervigilance and all these things and trauma are closely related to cortisol and like all of these trauma responses in your body. So it's like not surprising, but um, it, very recently, even in the last like couple of weeks, I've felt this like shift into, I don't know how to describe it other than like more of a sense of like actual presence than I've ever experienced. Like it feels more like I'm living in a state of prayer um, in sort of all of the mundane, the um. And so in doing all of the, like the dishes and running to the grocery store or whatever, it feels like those things have become hyper-spiritual because I'm like so like exquisitely present, which I think, like you said, like, I think it does take so much work to get there to like maybe strip off all the layers of like what we've learned and, you know, sort of what society and all the noise or whatever, but. I was thinking recently, like, it is quite terrifying to be exquisitely present because you, even in the mundane things, you, like, notice all of the, like, terror and the beauty and all of that. But it's like everything just becomes fully alive, even in the, I guess, trivial um, is what it's felt like. I'm so glad that you brought in the word present because that's... um... I think that's exactly it. And I use that word all the time and I don't know why I um, was stumbling over it today. Um, Mm. It's presence. All of those things is presence. The feeling of um, of freedom or union or peace is because you are able to be so like you have access to that thing that's coming through you. And there's so much of it there that you're no longer fragmented. Um, Your attention isn't fragmented. Your energy isn't fragmented or dissociated from any other parts of itself or stagnated i guess too you said that or earlier stagnant. too like with like the dow you know like there's a flow that there's can then flow. move through you and until until all those things that are clogging you know your internal state are sort of released yeah it's hard to access that feeling of flow yeah exquisitely present present i think is gorgeously put and like you said, I think it takes an enormous amount of work because there's a lot of parts of the psyche and, you know, on the individual level and the collective level that are um, tenaciously impeding that um, yeah. and holding on for dear life. And I know for me, it was, you can't, I don't think people can do it alone. Like I mm. had the gift and good fortune of coming across people at just the right time who saved my life who helped me um, get 
helped me get access to more of my own presence of more self energy so that um so that those other parts could calm down the conflicting warring parts could calm down a little bit like okay we've got presence she's here uh, we've got the 24 year old spirit that's still standing over the grave we're gonna get her back we're gonna you know we're gonna bring everybody back we have everyone on the same team and then there and then it is kind of like I am okay I'm just here the struggle kind of stops in those moments where that all coalesces um, and it is exquisite and I think it's To orient one's inquiry to, or you know work towards um, exquisite presence, I think would not only be the best gift that we could give ourselves and our spirits, but then also to other people. Because it's very hard to learn to be present unless you're around other people who have access to presence also. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one way that like we also sort of build separation into our lives, right? Is thinking that we're sort of, we have to do all of this alone. It's just like another form of separation to not realize that like not only are we part of a greater weave of existence, but also just like in our actual communities that like we don't have to, we're not just like out on an island and you have to heal. Um, I think that's the other part. I think that's actually in the quote that I have of Wendell Berry in that Andreas Weber episode. He's talking about like um, to think of individuals as like isolated entities without like to think of the health of an individual without thinking of the health of the larger community is like a contradiction of terms it just like doesn't make sense at all like you are as sick exist. as your community yeah. and you are as well as your community and your community as well as you are and your, your community is as sick as you are you know um and one broken heart is all of our hearts right yeah yeah it's just Emily, I think I could go on esoterically with you for probably six hours. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to go further and further into the existential. Um, but I would love to continue this offline sometime because uh, I just want, I don't know, I, I think you're amazing. <laughs> I'd love to continue conversation, but I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, it seems like a solid uh, place to wrap up, I think, just in thinking about. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, we're going to end on a question, I guess. Yeah, just being in presence. You know, there's no resolution. It just is. Just is. That's beautiful. Yeah. I'm so glad you um, brought in that combination of words. I'm going to hold on to that. Great. I love that. Well, thank you for, thank you for your work. It was. Um, I'll I'll probably read it in the intro, um, just so people can hear the piece that I wrote in response. And of course, I'll share links to, uh, you know, images of your work. Um, but yeah, it was, again, such an incredible gift to me to see someone who had been to that depth of feeling, who had contended with those warring pieces of themselves and of nature and uh, like the grotesque and the mundane and all of that stuff. It was, um, yeah, such an experience. So thank you for, I don't know, uh, I guess like being a human who's willing to go to those places and then share what it is you find in them with the rest of us. Thank you for being willing to go there with me. I, like you said, sort of in one of our emails back and forth, it's like, this is my home. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where else to go. <laughs> what else is there? What this else is... is there? Except the deep water. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Same. The piece you wrote was beautiful and 
and it's super important to me, you know, as being an artist who hunkers away in their studio for um, I'm trying to get away from identifiers. So I'll say uh, being a person who makes art hunkered away in their studio for three and a half years, not really knowing if this is ever going to mean anything to anyone else or not. And, um, you know, there's certainly times of enormous doubt and to put it out in the world and to feel like uh, other people or even just one person um, is able to find connection or relief or more present um, because of that. It just, yeah, it's such an, I'm so grateful for that. It's those kinds of interactions that keep me um, sane and doing, yeah. doing the hard work in the deep waters. Yeah, that's, I would agree. I think that's my experience of getting to share my work in the world and having anyone ever respond to it in a way, like, especially total strangers, you know, in a way that's like, wow, thank you for doing that thing. And that they sort of see me in it um, and see themselves in return, I guess. And that somehow there's like this generative nature of being an artist. And I use artist very liberally, like not necessarily as an identifying uh, trait, but as like a state of being. <laughs> so, um, I think basically everyone is an artist. Um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, the gift of that, I think, is that like, yeah, my work makes other people more alive and then they do their work, which makes other people more alive. Um, and I think we enliven you know, each other. Yeah. We're just here alivening each other back and forth all the time. And the sort of grand experiment of gift economy you know if we can just sort of gift each other the things that we bring out of the depths and that encourages someone else to go there and then bring something else out that makes someone else more alive then what an incredible fucking way to live like what 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 an incredible life you know what a great gift to experience that um and yeah i think um yeah, that, that, that's what the experience was, really, I think, of seeing your work, that why it felt so amazing to write that, that it was just like, this This didn't come from me. It just like, it just came out of me. And I don't even know how to des describe it. Like, of course, like, not to discredit myself, you know, like, I know that I have spent time in the deep waters. And that's a huge part, I think, of why I was able to encounter that work in the way that I did. But yeah, it's, um, I don't know, just like, what incredible fun. You know, it's like, I think to look at it lightly, like, I think so much of this can feel so heavy. And like I, like I said, I, when I left the gallery, I texted Drew and I was like, I could have scooped the grief off of those paintings. Like, it was just so visceral to feel that grief. But, you know, what's the like, you can only love as much as you've grieved or lost, you know, like that you could feel too, that it wasn't that like, it was just you stuck in grief and it was terrible and awful and whatever, you know, it was like, there was also the beauty and the lightness that you'd found and, you know, the portions of heaven that you'd, you'd learn to experience or whatever. Um, I think that's a really nice way of putting it too. I think Stephen Jenkinson says, you know, grief and the praise of life, well, grief and the praise of life side by side. Yeah. And I think I love that word praise. And I also love the word bless, you know, to bless mm -hmm. or to praise something. Um, 
because it kind of fits in there with just like I am like there's kind of an it's kind of an action it's not totally passive but you're not no. like out trying to save the world you're not out trying no. to like um I don't know you know resisting and fighting all of these complexities and contradictions you're just praising it and blessing it and being yeah and yeah I think you're absolutely right the depth of you know the depth that you grieve is can only be equal to the depth that you're able to love and praise another life or your own life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, you know, just like sort of, you said something about doubt and like doubt as an artist, like, you know what it is like, I think, I think we like to believe there's, there's like a point at which we stop doubting our own practice or our art or, you know, even faith, I guess, or whatever our, wherever our doubt lies. Um, like, um, Lauren and again she's just one of my closest friends so we were talking about this the other day and um you know she's like I just like I doubt myself all the time like I was just like she was just sort of um like voicing out loud to me that her experience of herself is just that like she's not actually that spiritual and she's like you know not really teaching anyone anything spiritual and I was like you have to be kidding me I mean I've I've maybe never met someone as like sort of mystical or spiritual as you like you walk into a room and it's like people's lives get realigned I don't like, um, it's quite magical to watch. And she was like, wow, that's so wild. I just like experience myself as someone who has just like crazy amounts of doubt. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I, um, I just see myself as like such a novice and like, I just don't, you know, I don't know that it's incredible to hear that from you, Brandy, but like, it's just not, it's so interesting because it's not necessarily how I've seen myself. And I was like, Lauren, like, I mean, one of my favorite quotes. I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's um, Rob Bell. Do you know who Rob Bell is by any chance? He's a former pastor at a huge church in Michigan, and now he he's run a podcast and he's a, he writes books and stuff. He's basically just like a spiritual teacher, and he's how that has happened has changed over time um, and has a really wild story um, and can be quite controversial depending on what side of <laughs> some, some form of spectrum you land on. Um, but there's a movie about him called The Heretic, a uh, documentary, and there's a part in it where he says something like, you know, basically talking about how so many people feel like um, doubt is like leaving the faith. Like it's sort of sacrilegious to doubt. And he's like, Oh, you talked about this in one of your um, recent episodes. Too. Oh, did I? Yeah, just, you did. Sorry, audience. I'm just repeating myself. Oh, that's OK. It's, it's, um, it's, it's good stuff. It's but yeah, it's like it's. It is the faith. Like it is doubt and questions and curiosity aren't leaving the faith. They are the tradition, basically. Because um, that's also and, the right. There is no such thing as faith if there's right. If, if there's, there's no, no doubt. doubt. Yeah. If you have complete certainty, that yeah, there's no reason to have to faith to have faith. Um, yeah. Just like there is no courage without fear. Right. You can't do something courageous if it's if you're not afraid of it in the first place. Right. I guess like, I guess like, yeah, just sort of continuing with that, that I think applying that to being an artist, like it's, um, there is, I don't think for most people, unless your ego is just so out of whack, that <laughs> you have a hard time holding the space. But like, I think there's not really a point at which you're like, oh, I'm just like a successful artist and I'm incredible. And I like, all my stuff is killer. Like every time I make something, it's just like, I nailed it every time, you know, and it's meaningful to everyone. And, you know, like there's, um, there's not really a lot of that. And so the act, I think that's why everyone is like, I think in some way, the spiritual way of describing everyone as an artist is just like, 
yet you're just the whole time uh, you're existing in a space of having to make choices that you never know the end result of. And that's fucking terrifying and beautiful and amazing. But like, yeah, your entire existence is sort of artistic and that you wake up every day and hope that whatever choices you're making, I don't know, are meaningful, are good. Yeah, I think Agnes DeVille says it's just, you know, the artist takes a leap after leap in the dark. That's all it is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> One leap after another. Yeah, which is what I told Lauren. But how alive like, is that? Exactly. Know? That's, yeah, that's the whole thing. But that's where, like, I think folks like you and I do still have to be like, maybe not just constant massive leaps. Right. <laughs> like maybe we can learn to live in reality sometimes. Um, not just the and maybe too. I mean, I'm thinking of your friend, Laura, and I was having this thought of like, you know, it's so interesting that how we perceive ourselves and how others perceive us. Like she might not, you know, she might be in such deep waters and straddling such far dimensions all the time. Um, that she feels like she's just, you know, struggling to contain all of this but she's doing right. so, she's already encompassing so much yeah you know that other people are just in awe right um, but she feels shaky perhaps because because it's shaky <laughs> yeah yeah that's what I mean I just you know? my response to her was also sort of like I don't know if you know this but you've basically just described the spiritual path <laughs> like yeah I, exactly. I don't know a ton exactly. of like ancient mystics who were like I got it. I figured it out. Um, all is well. I am fully realized. And I we're know done how to here. Yeah, we're done here. I know how to dispense wisdom that no one will ever question. Like, it's just the spiritual path is one of, yeah, it's, it's the artist path is like constantly sort of flinging yourself off the cliff and like having, that's what I say at the end of the piece, right? Like, uh, right on the back of the lion. Yeah, like right on the back of the lion, fling yourself into good work. Like the lilies will be there to catch you when you do. And we're all going there going eventually. There anyway. anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I think that was kind of what I was getting at too. And I was like, well, if my family's all gone, like my family's already with going yeah. off the edge. So um, yeah, I'm going there anyways. I might as well go out on the back of the lion. Whew. Man. I wish I could give you all four hours of this. There's definitely some stuff we needed to cut out uh, for various reasons, but all four hours were magical. And like I said, I hope to give you some bonus content if you're on my list or in some way, just let folks know who are following me in other ways who can see other types of media than in a podcast or on YouTube, uh, some additional content. Uh, so stay tuned to that. I hope to release that sometime in the very near future. But for now, whew, aren't we all on the path? You know, just being being in prayer, if that's what you want to call it. But yeah, just being living inside of the question, you know. But yeah, if you would like to continue following Emily and her work, you can find her online at emilymcelroy.com. And if you need help spelling that, it's spelled out in the title of this episode. But also, a link is in the episode description and in the episode show notes on my site, along with all other references in our conversation. So you can find that and everything else we talked about by going to her episode on my site, which is thisplusthat.com slash episodes. And thisplusthat.com is also where you can sign up for the This Plus That newsletter. Like I said, that's probably right now, at least, where I have an ability to announce to folks if I release some bonus content. So please go join that. You'll also get behind the scenes content like that and related content and personal insights from me. I usually write uh, personal essays at least a couple times a month. And I've been on a bit of a break lately. If you listen to my last episode, I explain why. 
and more context around that, but I'm thinking they're coming back relatively soon, if not by the time I release this podcast. So we'll see. But you can sign up for that also at my website. And you can also find me elsewhere online at this plus that pod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you feel grateful for this work, you can help support this show by dropping me a one-time tip or becoming a monthly supporter by going to my website and clicking on support this work. I just recently changed that from mutual aid to support this work. You know, listen, I really believe in mutual aid. It's the thing. It's how I like to think about it. Like you're supporting my work and, you know, the sort of gifts I give to the world by the excess and resources that you have and the gifts that you have. And I think that's a type of mutual aid and sharing in a gift economy. And again, more on that in the last episode, if you want to hear me talk about that a little. Um, but because in website user terms, support this work is more clear to whoever's navigating to my site than mutual aid. I went ahead and changed it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, one other huge way you can support this project is by rating it five stars on your favorite app and leaving a review and just telling all of your friends about it if they also like mashing weird things together and talking about the nature of the universe. And I'm serious. Uh, reviews and ratings are huge. I don't think I've gotten any on the show in a while. So if you haven't done one yet and you love this show, please go provide, uh, you know, five stars uh, as a rating and a little bit of a review for me it would mean the world to me. And I also want to say thank you to the podcast babes. They are the new team that I have producing this show. And I am so excited to have help doing this thing so that I can mostly now focus on having the interviews. So you can find them at thepodcastbabes.com. And yeah, outside of that, just thanks to you for listening. I am so grateful as usual that you're here. I hope you loved this episode with Emily and you'll go check out her work and her paintings because they are stunning. And I hope you get a chance to see them in real life at some point. But until next time, bye everybody. Bye.